Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. This episode is part one of a message Rob delivered at World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. About the time that I started college, there was a little booklet that became very popular. It was distributed by InterVarsity Press, and it was called The Tyranny of the Urgent by a man named Charles Hummel. And some of you may have read it, but it was very popular on college campuses, and it spread to a lot of businessmen and businesswomen everywhere. And the basic thesis of this book was just a little booklet. You can find it for free online now. But it said that there are many, many urgent things in life, things that press us, things that alarm us, things that we feel we have to do. We're under a lot of scheduling pressure because of the urgent. But there are also important things. And very often, the urgent things take precedent over the important things, and we never get around to the really important things because we are being tyrannized by the urgent. Now, that little book came out before most of us had computers, before cell phones had been invented. So what do you think our world is like now? We are tyrannized by the urgent, and the urgent shows up on our phones and with our notifications and with our computers and with our 24-hour news cycles and with our expanded schedules trying to fit everything in. And if we aren't careful, the tyranny of the urgent can crowd out the things that are really important in life. And the believers, those who follow Jesus Christ, are those who are able to discern the things that are important, and to put a collar around them and to prevent them from being overrun by the urgent things. Are you relating to this? Now, there are six passages in the Bible that refer to this using a phrase that is very, very simple. One thing. I found it six times referring to the ultimate priorities of life. One thing. Thing. So I want to take you through those six one things tonight, and we'll begin with Psalm 27. So in your Bibles or on your handout pages, look at Psalm, 120, uh, Psalm 27. This was written by David. Now, whenever I study a Psalm by David, I try to remember that David was a great student of the Torah or the Pentateuch, which was the first five books of the Bible, which he had, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 17, Moses had written, when you appoint a king over you, he is to write down every word of this Torah, these five books of the Bible, and he is to read it every day, and he is to keep it with him wherever he goes. And I think David did that, and he studied Genesis. 
the story of the creation, the story of the flood, the story of the Tower of Babel, the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He studied the book of Exodus and the Israelites coming out of Egypt and coming to Mount Sinai and the building of the tabernacle. And he studied Leviticus and the Levitical laws and the sentences there that said, love your neighbor as yourself. He studied the book of Numbers and the story of the spies that went in to Israel. He studied the book of Deuteronomy, that recapitulation of the messages of, of Moses. And the more he studied, the more it just exploded within him as worship and praise. And that's how we got to Psalms. He wrote out these wonderful songs because he was so full of the scriptures that he studied that he had to express it. And Psalm 27 is all about confidence, having confidence as we go through life. In fact, that's the way it ends. Look at verse 13. Well, you don't have it on your page, but verse 13 says, I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So if I could just give one word as a title to Psalm 27, it would be confidence. If you need confidence, then, well, this is a very good passage for you. So it begins, the Lord, Jehovah Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold or the defense of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He says here, Yahweh is my light. He lights up everything around me as bright as can be. He saves me and he protects me. He is my defender. So why should I ever be afraid of anything, including even a vast army? He says in verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then, I will be confident. Now here's the phrase. One thing I ask from the Lord and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, when he says the house of the Lord here, he is referring to the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle, which Moses erected at the instructions of the Lord in the wilderness, became more or less, in a sense, the earthly habitation of the personal presence of the Lord among his people. Now, we know that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. But he also is present in a personal way in our lives so that we can be close to him. And in Old Testament days, his presence was centered in this tabernacle. And in David's day, the tabernacle had become a stone building, and later it was built into the temple. So he says, I want to dwell. I want to be as close to the Lord as I can be. Now, that's the meaning of this verse. One thing I seek from the Lord, this is what I'm going to ask for. I want to be in his presence. I want to be as close to him as I can be to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. How often do we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? Well, sometimes we do it when we see a beautiful sunrise or sunset or 
We wake up in the winter and everything is snow-clad and the icicles are sparkling on the trees. And we say, a God who can create something this beautiful. We do it when we look in the pages of the Bible and we read about what God is like. We do it when we visualize the life of Jesus Christ. We do it when we study the qualities or the attributes of God. If you get a good theological book that talks about God's holiness, his omnipotence, his wisdom, his love, all of these things, it's mind-boggling to begin to think about the various qualities of God and to gaze upon his beauty. God is beautiful. I mean, that's what this is saying. Do you see this? God is beautiful to gaze upon and to seek him, and the idea here is to inquire of him and his temple, to be able to come to the Lord and worship him and gaze upon him, and then to inquire of him and to talk to him. This is the greatest thing in the world. This is the ultimate priority, knowing and having a relationship of the one who made us and gazing on his beauty and inquiring of his wisdom for in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock this is very similar I think to the New Testament passage in Colossians 3 that says since then you have been raised with Christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So it's the idea, well, maybe it's best expressed in outside of the Bible in the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief purpose of man. The chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Amen. So we're supposed to enjoy God. The fact that he wants to be a friend of us, that he made us, that he is so awesome that we can never fully understand him, that he fills the heavens and the heaven of heavens, he extends beyond where I can see or ear can hear or mind can think, but yet he is the joy of our lives. And we gaze upon him, we inquire, we come, we are close to him, which is possible because he made it possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate priority in life, is enjoying the presence of God. So David said, here's the ultimate priority. I know there are a lot of urgent things driving you this way and driving you that way, and you're racing across town, you're trying to get here, you're trying to get there, you've got appointments, you forget things because there are so many things to do, but the most important thing is to glorify God, to enjoy him forever, to have a relationship with him, to know him, and to gaze upon his beauty. Is that the one thing in your life? Now, sometimes it isn't. Because we have put something else over him in place of God. And that leads us to the next passage, which is in Luke chapter 10, or 18 rather. Luke chapter 18, which is the well-known story of the rich young ruler. So look at this. Luke 18, beginning with verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? We're told elsewhere this was a young man, and he had a position of power or authority in some way, and he was very wealthy. And he said, good teacher, I know something's missing in my life, and I want to have eternal life. And what is the answer for it? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, that's a strange thing for Jesus to say. What did he mean by that? The young man said, good teacher. And Jesus was saying, only God is good. So if you are calling me good, you are, in effect, calling me God. You are acknowledging that I am God if I am good because only God is good. So if I am really good and if I'm really God, then I'm going to tell you what you need to do. That was our Lord's intent. So he said, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man said, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Because it's very possible to be a good person and not genuinely to have eternal life or to know the Lord. It's possible to, now not good in God's sight, but good in the sight of other people. It's possible to be religious or to come to church or to read your Bible or to grow up in a Christian environment, but never have had an actual personal relationship with Christ. And so the young man said, I've done all of that, and I'm still empty. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. There's that phrase again. One thing. And then he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. This is a very unusual thing for Jesus to have said. He didn't say this to anybody else. I mean, when Peter wanted to follow him, he didn't say to Peter, well, you've got to sell your home in Capernaum, and you've got to sell your fishing business and sell the boats and cash in all of your assets and let go of your employees and follow me. He didn't say this to anybody. He didn't even say it to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus gave half of what he had to the Lord, but Jesus didn't say you have to give everything. So why did Jesus say that to this young man? Well, I think two reasons. Number one, this young man had money as his God. And the Lord was saying to him here, you've got to have me as your God. I've got to come before money in your life. It's not that having money is wrong, but it's very, very wrong if it is at the very center of your life. And if your motivation in life is materialistic. And then secondly, You've got to remember when this happened. This is in chapter 18. The Lord has left Galilee. He is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. It says in verse 38 that they were approaching Jericho. It says in chapter 19 that he entered Jericho. It says in chapter 10 that, or in chapter 20 that they came into Jerusalem. And then he came into the temple. He was on the verge of his crucifixion. This is one of the last conversations he had with anybody outside of Jerusalem. And he was on his way into that city to be crucified. And this young man, he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus was going right to the cross within days. 
This young man couldn't bring all of his possessions with him to the cross. He was about his whole life of the believers were about to be disrupted. And the followers that Jesus did have were about to be scattered to the four winds of heaven. So Jesus said, you've got to divest yourself of everything because your life is about to be disrupted because I'm about to be crucified. You're going to be persecuted and the money will, it will drag you down. Now, he didn't explain all of that to the young man. He just gave him a commandment. And the young man, at least at that point, said, no. I've got a feeling that the young man later came to Christ. I think there's more to the story. But at least in this story, he said no. And the lesson is, there cannot be anything more important than the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and our practical outworking of daily existence. We have other priorities, but nothing like Christ. He can't just be a part of our life. He's got to be at the center of it. He can't just be occupying some chair in our hearts. He's got to be on the throne. We used to call this full surrender. And it doesn't mean that you can't have money, but it does mean that it all comes second to Jesus Christ. And when you come to him, all the money is his too. All you possess is his too. He owns everything because he is Lord of all. And when you make him Lord of all, then everything else finds its proper place in your life. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. Those who buy something should live as though it was not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them for the world and its present form is passing away. Now, this is a radical sort of discipleship. It doesn't mean, again, that we are to give everything away unless the Lord specifically tells you to. It just means that Jesus comes first. You know, the congressman today that was elected as the speaker of the house Mike Jones he is a evangelical Christian he loves the Lord from everything that I've read so I was reading about him today and you know what the newspapers are calling him the media says he is an extreme Christian that's the way they put it extreme Christian I guess we are too <laughs> Jesus calls us to a radical sort of discipleship in which he comes first in our lives. And so one thing you lack, if there is anything in your life more important than Christ, then you got to give it to him. Now, the third thing is also in Luke's gospel, one thing you need. And this is at the end of chapter 10, beginning with verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all of the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to stop and help me. Martha, Martha. Occasionally, Jesus would say someone's name twice. We have it in the Old Testament, too, that sometimes God would say someone's name twice. So it was to really emphasize what was coming. 
you are worried and upset about many things. Now, if the Lord was to walk down one of these aisles right now and look at you, would he say, oh, you are worried and upset about many things. <laughs> yes, that's what he would probably say to me. But few things are needed, but indeed only one, or as it says in most of the translations, one thing is needed. One thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen that better part. So we've heard this story. I'm not going to go into it in depth. We all sort of try to figure out if we're Mary's or Martha's, and we're certainly a combination of both and some sort of equation. But I understand Martha. Uh, when my wife became ill and couldn't cook anymore, and then when she went to heaven, if we entertained, then I was the one who was the main cook and baker and table setter and everything else. And I've seen these hosts on TV that tell you how to do it stress-free and you never sweat and people come and you're smiling when you let them into the house and everything is done just right. It is never that way for me. They come right at the worst time. I go to the door, I open it, I say, come on in, the rice is burning. I run back to the kitchen. You know, I can understand Martha very well. But the point is not that Mary should never do anything useful in the kitchen. The point is that there is nothing better than sitting down every day at some point with an open Bible at the master's feet and seeing what he has to say to you. That was the lesson. That is the one thing that was important. And Martha hadn't gotten around to her quiet time that day. She was working too hard. Mary, well, wow, the one chance to have Jesus here. I'm going to listen to everything he has to say. And this is what we call, and maybe it's been the biggest thing that I preached on over all of these years that I've been trying to preach, is the quiet time. The daily time when we shut the door, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 6, go into your quiet place and shut the door and talk to your father in secret. And I've been doing that since I was 19 years old. And it's the one thing that has kept me replenished day by day, year by year, decade by decade. And I just want to recommend it to you. I have a friend named Mark Lanier, who is a very eminent attorney, one of the biggest and most successful attorneys in America. And I was with him this past weekend. And he said, we both were speaking at an event, and when he got up to speak, he was right after me. And he said, he told our group that when he was in college, he memorized the entire book of Philippians, four chapters every verse he committed it to memory and then he said in order to retain it in my memory I quoted it every day every single day for the next 10 years but he says even now I can never open the book of Philippians without finding something in it that I've never seen before that's the wonder of this book you keep going back, the meaning doesn't change. But the way it speaks to you and the application and the understanding and the appreciation you have for it is new every morning. Isaiah said, the Lord awakens me morning by morning with the ear of a disciple. He gives me what I need to tell other people. And that's what Mary had here. 
It was so valuable and important to her that she didn't want to miss it. So look at the progression here. There is one thing we are to seek, and that's the enjoyment and the fellowship and the gazing upon the Lord, to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ in which he is with us constantly. We are with him. We've got to make sure there is nothing in our lives more important than him because that hinders the process. But then, as we grow in him, we come to realize that nothing is greater on a daily basis in our regular routine than just starting today where we left off yesterday and spending time with him at his feet and his word. You can use some study guides, you can use a study Bible, you can use various translations. I like to use colored pens and pencils and you can devise your own way. You can use uh, inspirational books to help you. I love to use a hymn book as well because I love to include the hymns, but just this time with the Lord is just wonderful. It's like when you're dating and you get to spend some time with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. It's, uh, or it's like a, any kind of sweet friendship that you just look forward to. Uh, you know, some friends you don't see for a long time, but when you see them, you just pick up right off where you, where you left off. And that, that's the way it is with the Lord, although it's a daily thing and not simply an intermittent thing. So Mary had the great thing that she wanted to do. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company, Clearly Media. Audio editing and engineering is done by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thank you for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.